What a weird time of year it is. I mean, it's a really strange time of year because I know it's winter and I know it's December, but it's sunny out. And even though it's cold, it's not snowy. It snowed the other day, but it's not like snowy. If I look at the, I can see the roof of the house next door and there is no snow on the shingles. It doesn't even feel like like Christmas time, sort of. It kind of does, but it doesn't. Uh, but this is the last episode before Christmas Day. So let me see if I have anything interesting to pull out here. Um, I got some uh, books on Santa uh, Christmas Christmas carols. That'd be an interesting thing to talk about. Um, this one have any no that's mostly just about jesus not really ready to talk about that right now what do i have oh oh wait i wonder if mike's around Welcome back to Deep in Bear Country, a Berenstain Bear cast. I'm your host, Phil Gonzalez, and ho, 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 and a happy holiday. It's, 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 it's Christmas time. I mean, if you celebrate, if you don't, then it's a long weekend. But otherwise, it is, it is that time, it is that time of year. Uh, putting all things aside, it is time for my Christmas episode. I don't always do a Christmas episode. It's weird that I've been doing this for long enough now that I can say like, ah, eh, some years I do this, some years I don't. I don't always do a Christmas episode, but I decided everyone deserves a good a good Christmas episode this year, whether or not you celebrate. Everyone deserves a, a treat, a, a, a gift wrapped in a bow and presented to you with with overtures of, of love and goodwill and tidings of great joy. And that is what I'm bringing to you this week. And what, I, what I'm getting at is that this is a very, very special episode. I, it has been many years since I have had this guest on my show. It has been uh, I think that I think the only time I ever actually had an episode devoted entirely to an interview with him was episode 50, I think, because at the, at that point I was like, wow, 50 episodes. I've been I'm I can't believe I've been going at it this long. I better celebrate this show. And now I'm on episode 275. And that doesn't even include little bonus and little offshoot episodes. And I was like, oh, it's about time I got this guy back. But it, it is appropriate that this is a Christmas episode because the subject is is Christmas. The subject for the week is the Berenstain Bears Save Christmas. And what is the Berenstain Bears Save Christmas? It's a book, but it's also a musical, uh, an album. And at one point, potentially a major motion picture. It's a lot of things. It's a It's a turning point. It is a symbol of a change in the world of not only the characters of the Berenstain Bears, but also the way they are published, the way they were distributed, and the future of the property. A lot of things orbit around this bizarre book that you may not even have ever heard of called The Berenstain Bears Save Christmas. And it's a saga. It's a story. And the only person who is fit to actually tell the tale is the man who was there for the duration of the story and who illustrated the book. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a pre this is going to be a pre-recorded segment. 
but I am so honored to have back on Deep in Bear Country, Mike Berenstain. And here's the conversation I had with him earlier this week. So getting to the topic at hand. It's an interesting topic. Save Christmas, yeah. So uh, th- this, I mean, you wrote to me uh, a couple of years ago. You, I requested more information on it. You sent me this wonderfully detailed email. And once I got into it, I kind of got interested. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that, yes. I mean, because you had mentioned when we visited that this was a story, like a, a, this was an almost an epic tale. And yeah. you then you sent me the details of it. And I sort of sat on it for a while as a topic. I was like, this is big. This is really big. And I really wanted because this covers like this covers like a transition to a new publisher. It covers the TV show. It covers yeah. the 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 movie yeah, stage, uh, sort of the history of the bears on stage, uh, your parents relationship with with music and theater and it was a kind of fulcrum in terms of the development of the characters and it even goes back in some ways depending how deeply you want to go into it kind of my parents essentially my father's underlying attitude toward his work yeah and his origins as a creative person because it just it's sort of like cause and effect you can start tracing it back to the, to yeah. the big thing you know it's and everything since and it depends on how deeply you want to go into that so i'll let you be, be the guide on that I am, I've always wondered about your father's uh, like creative life. I mean, I, I, I mean, both of your parents have. I have always been fascinated by them as creators. Yeah. But when we went to the to the Strong uh, Museum and I saw the archives of their writings, I noticed that your father had a lot of pieces in there that kind of went off in many different directions. Uh, yeah, illustration wise, like novels, uh, ideas yeah. for screenplays, and. Uh, there's always been this sort of like thing in the back of my head of like, where was he trying to go creatively? That's, that's very related to the underlying story. I mean, he started out as a cartoonist, mm-hmm. magazine cartoonist. I mean, and that goes back to that goes back to World War II when he was in the army. The first cartoons he did, he was still in the army. Uh, he was a, a medical illustrator. And the reason he wound up as a medical illustrator is because he happened to have been blind in one eye. I don't know if you know that. I did not know that. Yeah, he had untreated childhood amblyopia. So he went blind in one eye and he lived, came from a very poor family in the depression and they didn't know anything about medicine. They just went untreated. So he basically had very little perception in one eye. And it tells you a lot about World War II that they drafted guys who were blind in one eye. Yeah. Uh, he was trained uh, in a whole you know, thousands of guys who had who were blind in one eye. They were all chained together mm. for limited service. The idea was that they weren't they could do a job in the army, but they couldn't be sent overseas into combat because right. they had people blind in one eye. Right. <laughs> but still they they figured well they could put them on guarding power plants and things stateside. And because he had uh art training, he was an art student, very talented, that uh people became aware of that and he wound up being assigned to being a medical illustrator to a plastic surgery unit in Indiana in a big, uh, huge army hospital that they were flying guys in who had been shot up and they were being re- early form of early, actually early development of plastic surgery happened then. Yeah. And a lot of the people who were prominent plastic surgery subsequently in the, in the country got their training and development in the army during World War II, working on facial wounds primarily. And that's what my dad did during the army, uh, the second half of the war. And uh, he had an art studio, a little art studio. So he, and he had some free time. So he started, he just loved cartoons and cartoons yeah. was just something he liked. So he started doing cartoons initially for army newspapers. And then he said, well, I can do this. And he uh, was, as an artist and art student, he was very interested in avant-garde kind of 
cultural things, you know, Picasso and Cezanne yeah. and literature. So he found a, a magazine in the base uh, library, the Saturday Review of Literature, which was a very important literary journal of that era. And he said cartoons about things like Picasso and you know, Shakespeare and things to this magazine. And they bought them, they liked them. So when he got out of the army, he and my mom were married right away mm-hmm. and decided that, hey, he's already, he actually tried to get a job as a medical illustrator out of the army and nobody was interested. There was no market for that at that time, apparently. And uh, you know, it is illustrating textbooks and things and nobody was interested. So he said, well, I'm doing these cartoons. So my, he and my mom started doing cartoons and uh, they, as a team and selling them to things like Saturday Review Literature and book reviews and things like that. Uh, but they also figured, well, this is a very limited market. We're going to send these cartoons to the big main magazines like Saturday Review, Saturday Evening Post, right. Collier's, the big family magazines, and they wouldn't buy them because they didn't publish cartoons about Picasso and Shakespeare. <laughs> so they finally figured that out, and they started doing cartoons about families and kids, which is sort of funny family life, especially they were about children, and that's what started their cartoon career. And then that they gradually, once they had children themselves and my brother and I were reading Dr. Seuss and they thought, well, we could do children's books. And that's how that all evolved. But their initial impulse was cartoons. And that really had an influence on my dad later. And also, as you know, and maybe many people don't know, in addition to the family cartoons they did, they did a lot of really adult humor. Oh, yes. That were rather risque and edgy. They held a whole series about a character they called Loverboy, who was a kind of, a, you know, he wasn't exactly a dirty old man, but he was <laughs> a little bit, a little bit in that direction. You know, he was very... And these were, they weren't nasty, dirty books, but they were, they were funny adult humor about adult subjects. Now I've got, a, I've got a number of them right here. I, uh, and they, they loved doing those. I think yeah. that was what they liked best. And I think that had a later influence on where my dad wanted to go with things, which takes us to save Christmas. Well, it's, uh, it's interesting because I, uh, I talked with Benjamin Clark, who's the curator of the Charles Schultz Museum. Hmm. And uh, there's a lot of overlap era wise in yeah, oh, yeah. your parents were developing in Charles Schultz and all these cartoonists who this post-World War II sudden like all these cartoonists who were exploring American life through cartoons and how they all kind of went in their different directions and Schultz went on to be a you know a daily cartoonist and your parents went on to be like yeah well so- of course they, they tried that too they did the sister right sister, right two years and uh, although it was, you know, it got published and distributed around the country, they, it never re- reached a distribution level that they felt justified the time and effort they had to put yeah. into this. Yeah. So, uh, so how does this? So how does this development then tie in with? I mean, because was Save Christmas wasn't their first musical or idea for a stage show, was it? No, no. there was a straight stage show, just uh, you know, n- no music adapted from the books, which this all grew out of relationship with the Rose Theater in Omaha, which okay. is a public, uh, a, you know, a, a public theater uh, that's patronized by the uh, Warren Buffett family. Okay. He's from Omaha. They're from Omaha. So this is one of their family projects, this uh, children's and children's theater based family yeah. theater. And so they, they do a lot of adaptations of children's books and things. And they approached my dad and wanted to do adaptation of some of the books as a kind of a group. So he did that. And that was very popular there in Omaha. And then uh, there was a second musical, which was not associated with Omaha. And I don't really remember how that came about. Or maybe it was. And it's, <laughs> it was called, and it, was, it, it, it toured the country. Uh, it was called the, just the Bernstein Bears on Stage. Yes. 
think or maybe I'm all mixed up. Is that the one that's narrated by the cowboy? Yeah. Okay. That's right. Joe McDermott was a guy who uh, was doing work on our video games. Okay. The music on our on our video games for a company that did video games, and he started writing uh, just speculatively for my dad some songs about mm. the characters. And so my dad kind of based his musical around his character, and he then he also uses the characters in his personal show. So it's a kind of a symbiotic relationship. Oh, I see. Right there. Um, but the Bears have a history yeah. with with music. Like that goes back as you know. Well, also the TV shows. Yeah. Had were musicals. Yeah. Right. And that that really grew about came about because that was the conception of them originally. And a very fine musician named Elliot Lawrence uh, did the music on those. He was uh, one of the last of the big band guys. He was a young guy in the big band era. Had his own big band. Became a very important musician. In, uh, he was associated with uh, Joe Cates, the producer of the early shows. Who the Cakes Brothers produced all the Emmy series, mm. the Emmy Awards shows, and Elliot Lawrence did all the music for the Emmys. He was the music director of the Emmy Awards. Uh, Joe Cates, by the way, is the dad of uh, Phoebe Cates, the actress. And oh, okay. Wife of uh, uh, Kevin, Kevin Klein. Klein. Yeah. So there's this. So there's this connection of the Berenstain you know, Bears. The Berenstain Bears one that we connected with everything. <laughs> yes. Uh, but anyway, uh, Joe was the and his brother were the producers and. Uh, they had a good relationship with my dad and used the NBC's seasonal specials. Okay. And Lawrence was the composer and my dad worked with him and he did some great music for the, and songs for those shows. So it all grew out of that. You know. And your uh and and the lyrics for these songs were always provided by My dad wrote all the lyrics. Uh was he always interested in songwriting or Yeah, it goes back to obsession with movie musicals when I was a kid. Okay. You know, Busby Berkeley musicals. Yeah. Like that. He was obsessed with them. And it was all his life. Oh, I did not know that. Peter Rogers for the stare. Yeah. So it just seems like it seems natural. And of course, the Bears aren't the first cartoons, obviously, to hit the stage and to be portrayed musically on stage. Like that's a that sort of seems like a thing that like from Little Abner to yeah. Little Orphan Annie on. Like you they know, all. I saw Little Abner on the stage when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. In, the, in Broadway. My dad, my parents took me to uh, my brother to it. What was that? And what did you think? I didn't understand what was going on. But <laughs> I was only about four or five years old. They were big theater girls. And they'd yeah. take up, they'd either, when it was on the road, uh, you know, tryout. Philadelphia used to be a big tryout city. And also they'd take us up to New York and go to shows. Yeah. All kinds of stuff. I saw My Fair Lady. I saw the original production of Music Man. Wow. <laughs> That's fun. It was a pretty wild thing. It was fun. I didn't really understand it, but I thought they were fun. Yeah. So this, this so this show, so you said that this show is kind of tied into into your your parents, specifically your father's desire to go out in different directions to explore yeah and it, it it it's it's rooted in the fact that we the development contract for the pbs animated show was in many ways a very onerous restrictive contract mm -hmm. it wasn't with pbs it was with nelvana corporation part of the big canadian media conglomerate chorus and nelvana had a deal with pbs to develop children's books into animated shows so nelvana uh now, that is not a crooked company, but they're very sharp operators. They're a very tough, tough operation. They're very sharp business people. Yeah. Rapacious, I would say. So. And uh, we needed to get back on TV in order to sell books, frankly, at that time. Yeah. We, uh, the, we hadn't had a TV show since the mid-80s, the CBS show. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that the immense success of the first-time books in the early 80s, plus the fact that the, the characters were on TV, really put the the series kind of into you know orbit kind of escape velocity that yeah. mid-80s period of the power of the two combination elements and by the late 90s that that was no longer happening i mean 
these, uh, there was a lot of things going on in, in the world of publishing and, and book distribution, many things. And they were all working together sort of against selling Bernstein Graphics. <laughs> the sales, frankly, were going way down at that mm. point. And by the, uh, and I was working on with my friends full time by that time in all a lot of aspects of both the books and the business. And by the early two thousands, you know, it was of concern. It wasn't like that, that we we're going to go out of business, but you know, you want your business to thrive and be successful yeah. as possible. And uh, we knew that we wanted to have opportunities to bring them back onto TV or movies or something. And there had been a lot of discussion and back and forth with all kinds of media entities about doing this since. Since they since since they went off the air, and they, I'd say by the early '90s, there was a lot of back and forth and discussion. Yeah. All kinds of people in Hollywood about bringing them back into the screen, some movie, TV, and it never really worked out. It just was you know, a series of unsuccessful attempts to do that for various reasons. Uh, but in the early 2000s, uh, Nelvana got in touch with my parents and said they they were rather deceptive. Frankly, they said that they were interested in developing. A Bernstein Bears animated show, and they would then try to sell it to PBS. Uh, that was a big fat lie. They had been tasked by PBS to acquire the rights to the Bernstein Bears to, in order to produce a PBS show. Uh, but we didn't really learn that until much later. Why would they have phrased it that way then? Because they wanted to get a better deal. Oh, they wanted, I see. They wanted to have it so they wanted it to be like they were doing us a favor. Oh, I see. Yeah. If they had said PBS wants us to acquire the rights to the Bernstein Bears, we would have said, "Oh, great." Here, this is what we want. And we would have known that we could have held out in negotiations, but they didn't want us to. They wanted to have the edge, and they did. And um, so we, they wanted, uh, they wanted a lot of things that we weren't willing to give them. They wanted a cut of the publishing. They wanted all kinds of stuff. And we just said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We don't care what your deal is. But finally, we got to a point where we kind of had it as good a deal as we were going to get from them under the circumstances and based on our knowledge of the situation at the time. And it still was, had some onerous elements. And one was that it was for a, a long period of development that if once they did a TV show, they would have the rights to any kind of animation for like 12 years. Mm. It was a very long period. Uh, and they would have all licensing rights, that is all merchandise and licensing rights to the characters for products and, and services and you know, theme parks or whatever, any kind of thing like that. People aren't necessarily familiar with the term licensing, but you know what I mean. It's, yeah. it's you take the characters and you characters and you do something other than a book or a TV show with them. You're right. You, you put them on a T-shirt or sneakers or make them a vitamin box or right. anything like that. Anything that's not the original media format. Of the uh, and uh, it was it was difficult. It was problematic. And my dad said, "Well, we're not going to do this." And I talked. And I actually got in a big fight with him. Oh, really? Big conflict with about. I said, "Yeah, I said I know that this this is uh, problematic. This contract, but our core business is books." And he agreed. Yeah, that's our core business. And I said, "These other things, that's nice, but that's not what we're really all about. Our our whole identity and what we're doing in our careers and our future is based on books. And we've totally kept control of the books. If we get a TV show on, that's going to run. That's going to push the sales of the books. That's yeah. going to make our publishers happy, and they're going to be able to sell books." And I think that we just have to bite the bullet on the rest of us and accept that in order to thrive in publishing, we have to accept the owners elements of this deal. And he didn't like that. He didn't like <laughs> telling him what to do. And but I, you know, I made my case, and he realized the logic. Of it. So uh... we had a very, very owners conversation, very difficult conversation, where I finally said, "Look, in a few years from now, I don't want to have to go into a bookstore and find a couple of Ernestine Bear books stuck down in a corner." Somewhere. Oh. I don't want that to be the outcome of right. where we're going with this. I don't want to be going down, down, down. 
Yeah. The slope of the brand and the whole series going into a downward spiral. And his reaction was, he said, well, maybe you shouldn't go to so many bookstores. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but we worked it out. And yeah. he saw the logic and truth of my position from a hard-headed business point of view, which was what I was basically doing. And so we did it. And it worked. It, it revived the whole the basis of the, what's the success of the characters now came yeah. about from that PBS show and then the publishing we did in association. But now, so now Nelvana though had control over. They had all movie rights. Okay. That's, and so the, and so you, you they had, had, they had all media rights basically. And they didn't, weren't doing anything with them. They just locked them up. They were like trolls sitting up. Yeah. <laughs> but so, that had planned, he had this scheme from the beginning. He said, maybe there's some way I can carve out a movie right that will be free of them. And he had this scheme came up with based on the fact that we were doing stage shows. And I don't remember exactly the sequential details, you know, what, what led to what, you know, if, if this, then that kind of A, B, A equals B equals C. But it basically had to do with if you did a stage show, mm -hmm. and it may have been a musical, that was achieved, achieved a certain, a, a, an original show, not based on one of the exists that Nelvana had, books that Nelvana had rights to, but an original story that attained a certain amount of performance during a period of time, and you did a book based on that, then you could have the rights to make a movie based on that book. So that's where this book came from. This is a very like labyrinthine process to get to a, a movie. Now, the movie, this was an ultimate goal for a long time, wasn't it? Yeah. And my dad had been working on this with a lot of, you know, very significant people in the movie business for a long time. Uh, and I don't really, I can't really say exactly why it didn't work out in the 90s or that period when there was a lot of intense interest in doing that. But a big factor was my dad wanted to write the script for the movie. Okay. He wanted to be the screenwriter. He didn't want to work with other people. He wanted, it was going to be his baby. And that had worked on the TV shows, the, yeah. the specials. It didn't. It didn't work on the CBS shows because there was too much writing to be done. But he he wrote a lot of those scripts and rewrote them and worked work with worked with a lot of them. He was like the editor in chief and rewriter of those scripts. He had great hands on for the CBS script, and that's he wanted to do that. And he was very important to him. But movies don't work that way. Right. Yeah. You know, when somebody if somebody's going to put up, you know, I don't know what the budget would have been then, but now it would be like you know eighty, ninety, a hundred million dollars to do a full theatrical release release uh, uh, animated full animated movie they're not going to just say oh yeah stan berenstain no experience with writing a, a movie some tv screen experience we're going to just give you total control of every aspect of it and no that's just not the way it works and so i think that was a big factor in why nothing ever actually got done now how, mu how much of that was was a desire to keep the development of the characters in-house and how much of that was a desire to write a movie like be a both. filmmaker both he went he wanted both he was very motivated by having control over what anybody did with the characters which was a very good motivation mm -hmm. uh, difficult to achieve because they're not going to give uh, in doing it with something that let's scale a budget and i know this from experience because of what i'm working on now you know, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to give anything away saying that we're in pre-advanced development on a movie now. Mm. Uh, not, it's not greenlighted. It's not scheduled for production, but we're pretty well along the way with scripts and development. Uh, it would be, these days, they've decided it will be direct to streaming. Not, they're not committing to any theatrical release right. like because of the new world we're in. Uh, but anyway, that, so I'm, I have experience with what you can do and right. what they'll give you. And uh, they'll give you a lot of input. A lot of, you know, guaranteed you you are to be consulted and review this and have your input. But there's no way with the kind of budgeting that they put into movies that anybody's going to give the, the IP, the intellectual property owner, complete control. Yeah. They're not going to give you total veto power. 
It just doesn't work that way. And that's what my dad wanted. And he wanted that for very good reasons. And he also was a very good screenwriter. He'd done wonderful scripts for TV and he wanted to try his hand at a movie. That's a very good motivation too. It just was from a practical getting that movie made done. It just wasn't realistic. Yeah. So so this was all going out throughout the 90s. And it's interesting because in the 90s, we started seeing a lot of live action adaptations of cartoons. That was kind of the big big push. Um, Certainly nothing, certainly adaptations that took a lot of liberties with the characters and took a lot of ironic uh, uh looks at the characters something like the flintstones and the sh- and movies sure. like that um <laughs> i forgot that yeah john goodman john goodman <laughs> yeah that was really silly so then you hit the 2000s and you're uh and you're dealing with nelvana you have this show suddenly the rights are all tied up um in you know with them and so the idea comes to create a stage show create a wait create a book that can be adapted into a stage show that can then be adapted yeah, I don't into really a remember it was create a book that's adapted to stage show or the other way around i i <laughs> it was a book to stage show to move was the sequence that the contract it was like carving out a little you know a loophole right and my dad got that into the contract with that as in his mind that he would try to do that and it was such an obscure minor thing that Nelvana accepted it because, again, from a practical point of view, it wasn't really anything anybody was going to be interested in to make a movie. I mean, that sounds good. It sounds good theoretically. But if you're going to make a movie about the Bernstein Bears, you're not going to acquire rights to one book. Right. You want the rights to the characters, to the whole brand, the whole thing. So the whole idea that this was some viable scheme that he had figured out that was going to work and you could use it as a way to make a full movie just was, again, unrealistic. But he believed in it. And then the decision was made to make it a Christmas themed. Because at that time, a lot of, I think Christmas kids movies was a happy, was a oh, big okay. thing. It still is. But at that time it was like the thing. Yeah. Yeah. You do, you do a kid's Christmas movie and that's the, the, the road to fame and riches and everything else. Right. I guess you had, I mean, cause yeah, you were coming off like the Grinch and things like that. Like that was a, and of course, a big deal. by the way, this, this thing originally was titled, how the bears saved Christmas. It was a complete Grinch ripoff conception. Which is fine. I mean, there's yeah. going back to the Dr. Seuss origins, like that exists, that connection's there. Yeah. And uh, the, the brand, uh, Republic Harbor Collins, when they published, they said, well, this is called the Brand Save Christmas because how save Christmas is too obviously right. a ripoff of the Grinch. And uh, we, my dad accepted that. So you had a big hand in the development of this book. Yeah. It's sort of the, Unfortunate hand is the way. I have a lot of regrets about my hand. Was this like the biggest thing you had taken on at this point? Yeah, as you know, a lot of the stuff I had been working on before, I was kind of the master of the art in the, the chapter books. Mm-hmm. And that was all black and white. Right. Now, I had a lot of experience with doing color artwork, but it was in my own books, which were totally different. Yeah. Uh, and I, although I had done color on the bears, I had done a lot. Mm. You know, that was my experience with doing full color artwork on the bears at this point when this came on, this would have been about you know, 2002, so um, was limited. Yeah. And uh, so, and this was a Christmas book, it had to be a big, spectacular, huge, it's huge, it's, you know, large format, many pages, complicated, elaborate artwork. And I wasn't really that, I wasn't really up for it, frankly. I don't think I really had the skills to do it properly at that stage. And I had the further problem that uh, I kind of went overboard on the color because it was a Christmas book. Mm-hmm. So I kind of oversaturated the color to make it bright and brilliant. And then unfortunately, 
HarperCollins, when they published it, they had the same idea. They decided to oversaturate the color even further in the printing to make it a spectacular, rich, ornate children's book. So it was like, you know, you're taking, you take poison and then you take some more poison on top of it. And the whole thing came out looking like, to me, it looked like it had been soaked in beet juice or something. It is a very colorful book. Like I'm looking at it and it's... I have it here and it just... The original artwork is kind of over the top, but the final print book is over, over the top in the color. Now, stepping back a sec, you did mention the uh, the publisher of this book, because another part of this story is that uh, this was seemingly one of the one the of the points of PBS show too. That's a part of the PBS saga. They're all interconnected. Yeah, because, um, you know, one of the idea of the fact that we were willing to accept the restrictive terms of the contract for developing the PBS show. We did that because we wanted to sell books. Yeah. It's like, okay, we'll accept this, this, this onerous quality to this, but it's going to help our core business, our, our, our love, our main love and identity and activity is, is doing books. And part of our problem at that time, and it gets kind of complicated, I don't want to overcomplicate this, but you know, in the 90s, that's when the whole Disney book licensing became mm. Thing. I don't know what the sequence of the early Disney Eisner era movies were, like late 80s, early 90s, yeah. when the big explosion of the Eisner Katzenberg period, you know, happened, the whole Roy Disney uh, takeover of, of Disney. And, uh, you know, lic- licensed books from media for children's books had been an important thing in publishing going back to the 50s, but it wasn't like it became. In the 90s, it exploded, it began to dominate. A mass market children's publishing, the, the Disney license, you know, Mermaid and Lion King and all the rest of it just exploded. And Random House became the primary. They had had a long history of relationships with Disney going way back. And so they became sort of the prime Disney publisher for children's yeah. book adaptations of the, of the media properties. And so Disney, uh, Disney children's books with Random House began to squeeze out everything else. It became such a priority for Random House. And they had to commit so much money mm-hmm. to get the rights to these things. You know, uh, the way that works with Disney is that you pay, you know, you, you, like, you submit a bid. The publisher would say, well, here, we, we commit like X hundreds of thousands of dollars. We're going to pay you that up front for the rights yeah. to do the books. And then you hope you make the money back and more. And uh, that something with Lion King or something, that works great. But with some things, it didn't work out so good for Random House. So they didn't make money on them. So they, 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 their budgetary situation got very constrained in terms of everything other than Disney by the late 90s. So we were getting more and more restricted in what mm. Random House was willing to do with us. So that, you know, there were a lot of problems in publishing for us at that time. So the idea of the PBS show, and we had told the Random House uh, that, you know, that we had this interest in a PBS show. And they said, oh, great, just go for that. We want that. That's just, you know, run, don't walk toward the PBS show. Because this is at a time when the PBS shows were really uh, very successful in in, uh, in children's books. Yeah. Um, Arthur, uh, the character Arthur, uh, had been a, a fairly successful children's books with Little Brown. But then once it got on PBS, it just exploded as a children's book phenomenon. The, the licensed versions of them that Random House and other were publishing. So, you know, that's, that's a phenomenon that Random House, they said, yeah, we want that. Okay, so we did this kind of dirty deal with Nevada to get the to get the, the, the show on. It was getting on, it got scheduled. And my dad went to Random House and said, okay, the PBS show is coming on. Now let's do a whole bunch of Berenstain Bear books time to come out with the show and sell. And they said, no, we don't think so. We're just going to go and do what we're doing. We'll do a couple of books a year. And 
by that time, we had already, were already publishing the Save Christmas book with HarperCollins. That was a one-off with HarperCollins. That was not, we were going to HarperCollins with the property. What had happened there is when my dad went to Random House with his scheme to do this, this elaborate Save Christmas book, uh, they said, no, they said, we don't think we can sell a big kind of Christmas standalone book with the Berenstain Bears. Because this is a large book. This is a big yeah. format book. And uh, they just said, we don't think that that's going to work for us. And so my dad and I and my mom, we were ticked off about that. So uh, then my dad took it to HarperCollins. But it was just here. This has been rejected you know, by our main publisher. Would you be interested in, in doing this? Experience? And they said, yeah, they jumped at it. Yeah. So that's how that got published. So that got published at the same time as the PBS show was just coming on or just before. But at the same time that's happening, then Random House is saying they don't want to expand their bear publishing program to coincide with and capitalize on the PBS show, which is releasing in 2003 and four. And so then we shifted everything toward HarperCollins, the whole, the whole brand. And so that's, that, that's where that came from. And if I remember correctly, you said that, like, because there was no exclusivity with no. Random House. There was no contractual exclusivity. Yeah. We basically had, and this is true in general, with the publisher, how we publish and how I publish now, is that you sort of have a principal publisher and you sort of have a kind of a de facto handshake, first look deal with that. Yeah. It's not formal, but it's like as a courtesy, a professional courtesy, and you have an important, it's your primary relationship. If they want to do something, they, they, they can do it. But if they don't want to do something, and if they want, like say, you say, go to them and say, we'd like to do uh, you know, board books. And they say, no, we don't want to do board books. Well, then it's like, okay, go to board, somebody else with board books, that kind of thing. Yeah. Or if you if you go to Random House and say, we want to do this big uh, special you know, event Christmas book, and you don't want to do it, then okay, we, we don't have a courtesy, courtesy about that. Anymore. We're, we're yeah. done. So you take it to them, you know, you take it to HarperCollins, and they say, yeah, we want to publish this book. Uh, my question is, how did you, how did you end up illustrating the whole book like how did this end up being your project well my parents did they didn't have time to do it it was on they had time they were fully employed doing what they were doing we were hiring freelance artists to do some stuff Mm. because and by this time uh i don't remember what the status of the i think we were pretty much done with the with the chapter books yeah well i was available to do something like this and uh uh, flogging away at the chapter books anymore and was it written by your parents? Yes, my dad wrote it. Okay. And was this based, do you know if it was based on like uh, early ideas for the for the play or if it was just, if this was the original? I don't remember if he really thought of it as a play first and then as a book or as a book first or as a play or sort of simultaneously. Yeah. We don't remember. Uh, but basically it just grew out of, it grew out of a thing that he worked on years and years and years ago that was not even really a Berenstain mm. property. I, again, people don't, and nobody would know this, but my parents had a history as uh, uh, TV writers uh, in the 60s, 70s. They never got anything on the air, but they they sold scripts hmm. for, for sitcoms and things. Okay, uh, that was something they tried, and, and they made you know they had some success at it just professionally, but nothing ever got on the air. Um, and one of the projects they worked on, and this is going way back, there was a cartoon character which nobody will have heard of now. I think it was actually Belgian in origin called Max, called Max, and he was a hamster. Okay. And he was a funny cartoon character, European cartoon character. And they were not like immensely popular, but they were around. You could buy books of Max the hamster. He was a kind of funny, accident-prone comic character. And the, 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 I don't know if it was the agent or somebody for this Max character in America 
or the editor, I think it was the editor of the books that were published. They were cartoon books. My parents were doing cartoon books. I forget with whom at that time, Macmillan or somebody. And the, their editor, their cartoon editor was the editor of these Max European cartoon books. And he had the idea to publish a new Max book in America about Christmas, you know, Max's Christmas. And he wanted to know if my dad would write it and work on it with the cartoon create. And so it was like Max Saves Christmas. Yeah. And that's the origin. And it never got published. It never, it was this, I remember as a kid seeing these crazy sketches about the hamster pretending he was Santa Claus. And <laughs> I think it was even the idea it was going to be a TV show. It was a very one of these Byzantine projects. And that's what it grew out of. It grew out of Max's Christmas. Wow. It was a revival of this obscure, unpublished, undeveloped, crazy cartoon idea from the 60s. It is amazing just how much you scratch the surface of anything. And there's like about a and dozen it, stories. Until we were talking about it, I didn't even remember that it grew out of Max. <laughs> as we were saying, where did it come from? And I thought, oh my God, Max's Christmas. Max's Christmas. So uh, so this book, this book is sort of a straightforward the town has lost interest in or has lost the true meaning of christmas they've they've become very it's become over commercialized santa gets fed up uh, uh decides yeah, he's right. not going to deliver presents to them anymore just the hell with everybody yeah it's it's very it's very uh it's very twas the night before christmas the old rankin bass special like you see the darker side of santa he's he's fed up with with the town and uh he encounters the bears who don't realize it's santa and he they 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 bring him in on a cold winter night they they give him you know warmth and goodness and he learns that there is still goodness in the hearts of the bears and he decides I'm going to deliver presents. It's a very straightforward Christmas idea. A, fable, a Christmas fable. Right. Uh, it's a charming little tale. And uh, I actually very, I actually very much like the portrayal of Santa in this. I like seeing Santa pull a Henry V and like yeah. dress up as a commoner. I like it. I, and also the musical that wound up being based on it was wonderful. It was much darker and dystopian than this. <laughs> yeah. It, so, was really, it was really harsh. It so was the musical harsh. brings in uh, that was my favorite... My favorite character, Ralph Ripoff, yeah. uh, shows up, and he sort of becomes the uh, the. It's his machinations that that sort of drive the bears to this. But uh, Ralph, at this point, of course, had been mostly a chapter books and cartoon character. Uh, how did he get pulled into now, sort of the overarching world of the Berenstain Bears? My dad liked Ralph. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he always wanted, he, and this goes back to what I was saying about his origins as a cartoonist and doing a lot of books that were kind of edgy, more adult humor. Toward the end of my dad's life, he really yearned for that. Hmm. He frankly had gotten kind of bored with doing books for little kids. And he kept wanting to push things older and more sophisticated and edgier and more complicated. That's the origin of the chapter books. That's why he wanted to do that. That's the origin of these complicated very unchildlike adult stage shows. It's, and that's it's he, that's where he wanted to go with it. And yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the story. So the, the musical as produced in Omaha in the last year of my dad's life, he was very ill by that time, uh, got produced. It was very edgy, very unchildish, and very adult oriented. And they, they, the contract was that it was to be at least two seasons. And the poor Omaha Theater Company came to me after my dad's death passing and said, we can't put this show back on. People hated it. Wow. <laughs> they had people wanting their money back, children being taken out of the theaters crying. And and <laughs> so we, I got together with uh, Jamie Broza, Elliot Lawrence's son, who had taken on the, the music. And we 
basically put together a new version of it that toned it way down. It wasn't very, it wasn't very good, but it was able to be, it was producible. So we are able to produce it on a second season. I mean, obviously I don't, have never seen this show. I don't, I don't, there's no like, there's very little like online that I can find evidence wise. It was only produced twice. Once in the original version and a second time as the, the, the revised, bodilized version. But from what you recall, like what made it dark and edgy? Well, there were a couple of personifications of the, the commercialization of, of Christmas. There was a, it was a, they were like something out of guys and dolls, a, a man and, and a woman. And they were like, almost like, you know, gangster characters, uh-huh. they were edgy, you know, 42nd Street zoot suit kind of characters who were, had Brooklyn accents and they talked like this and they were horrible commercialized personification of Christmas who come in and they take over Christmas with Ralph. And yeah. it was, it was frightening. It was very dark. They had these wild, it was like some kind of, it was a great show. I loved it. Yeah. It was a great show. You would, you would love it. <laughs> it was really more like a Broadway show. It was yeah. like, it was like something, it was like Lil, Ab, Lil Abner or it was like something out of the sixties or fifties, this mm. edgy cartoony musical. And yeah. It was not for a children's theater in Omaha. Right. Right. Or any children's theater anywhere. Right? It might have a better life off Broadway <laughs> these days. Uh, so anyway, that's, that's why you don't see anything about it. It's 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 fascinating though because they always say like nothing is ever nothing ever disappears it lives forever online but it's just it's there's such a, this dark this black hole the the recording of it that exists or the recording that exists is that of your version because there's like the, the soundtrack that's like it's on Spotify like if you look Baron's name that's, up. that's the second version okay okay yeah. the toned down version the because second version. yeah because it. Uh, it's there, but again, it's it's just we had sort to of take out whole numbers, and and what Jamie uh, did was replace them with adaptations of stuff from the uh, old the original uh, Christmas Tree show. Mm, okay, adapted elements of the music that Elliot Lawrence had created for the TV specials and used them as a basis for. I see new numbers, children's oriented numbers in this this hybrid bastardized version. Now, was this a setup when the show was being written? Was this a setup where like there were like around like there was just musicians around were they like just collaborating was like was it or was it like more of like a elton john bernie talpin thing where this was sort of happening long distance i know who elton john is who's the other guy oh bernie talpin who wrote his lyrics like they would they were never in the same room they were they would sort of mail back and forth as far i mean uh, my dad worked with elliot lawrence and jamie mm-hmm. uh, his, well, his son uh, they were a, t- a team at that point. Maybe so are. I think they still be maybe 100 years old, but I think he's still around. I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, But my dad worked with them. And as far as musicians and doing the music, that was their job. They, yeah. they did the actual production. Um, what, would it, what would it take to get a sh- production of this mounted again? Make me an offer. <laughs> I don't have any funds. I was just, I, I, I'm just, I guess I'm curious, like, is, is this a thing where, like, if people were willing... It would you would it, you would be willing to dig up the old script and score and have it mounted. Even again. the second version would need a lot of work. It would need to be sort of rewritten from yeah. scratch. Like you know, you need you need the script doctors in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Major medical care, but uh, although uh, frankly that's unlikely to happen because uh, part of this uh, media development deal that we're, mm. I can't really give you specifics about, but it's you know I think it's it's moving ahead. Uh, live shows are part of that. So. Oh, I see. So yeah, it's a uh, yeah. And, I mean, that's, again, it's 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 like the Nelvana deal, and the things are going to be tied up for a long time. But it's not it's not a bad deal. It's a good. It's deal. Great. <laughs> no, it's a good to hear. Everyone knows about it, fortunately. <laughs> 
Because, I mean, as a theater person myself, uh, as someone who, I mean, collaborate, co-wrote a musical myself, uh, I find the development of theater to be just endlessly fascinating. I mean, but just today I was just on, in my spare time, I was reading the history, like the history of Greece, how it developed from like a three hour long uh, garage show into like the biggest musical in the world. Like you, like, and from top. You what? I didn't know it was a garage show. Oh, yeah. It was a Chicago-based garage theater. I think the original production was four hours long. Like, it was just, it was something they threw together as a tribute to their childhoods, and then it just sort of grew into this juggernaut. But one of the things that I've just always been fascinated with the history of the Bears and the history of your your family and the way this is all, de- and continues to, de- I mean, obviously, it continues to develop, is, is that there is no one version of the Berenstain Bears. It's always been this evolving like the core yeah. family's always been there but the way they the way they interact and are portrayed you know the the it's very inconsistent but i think that's f- wonderful i think it's great that the bears you see in the in the ad hoc. excuse me it's very ad hoc, ad hoc. yeah what, what, uh, what do you need ne- what do you what do they need today uh, that's very, i'm sorry that sounds very negative but I'm no frank, no you know you sort of you do things you want things to get done you if somebody wants a musical you figure out a way to do a musical it's it's you know yeah we, we want to do stuff yeah no i uh the, and you've made that known uh, i say we collectively i mean me now yeah uh and they continue to i mean you continue to to i mean there's many berenstain bears christmas books like christmas is something that they're yeah i'd counted there's 12 there's there's only 12 and there's going to be well 13 if you include include winter wonderland which i, I do include winter wonderland yeah, well then there's 13 and um i'm about to work on a 14 okay which is going to be great because it's a scratch and sniff book <gasps> really so, the, oh. the, the, the wonderful smells uh, sense of christmas the uh the uh collectors club particularly uh brad and jeremy will be very excited there hasn't been a berenstain bear scratch and sniff book since the original there's been one the pizza book wow and this will be the first scratch and sniff book since the pizza book and i am <laughs> i am very excited about that because I, I imagine scratch and sniff technology has come a long way i doubt it <laughs> I, I don't know it's they, the samples I've seen that they gave me as models for the book, they look just, they're just like the old ones. You have a little patch and you scratch it. And you scratch it. <laughs> I think that's I wonderful. Changed at all. It, I don't think that they're glued in anymore. I think they're actually manufactured as part of the page. Like, yeah. It doesn't look like they're hand glued in like the way they used to be. Well, so, so it, I mean, developments, you yeah, know, that's, that's modern. That's the modern world, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so the musical came, the musical went, and it just kind of disappeared obviously the berenstain bear save christmas movie didn't happen yeah i actually uh, tried to interest some people in it since we had the rights yeah you know, it had worked and so and nobody had the slightest interest in that they said well we don't want to, we don't want to just get the rights to one book right it's crazy i said yeah of course it's crazy <laughs> And, uh, and, then it, and then it went its own way. I mean, the, the and you said in your email to me a couple of years ago that even the book itself was, what, over-ordered? So it... Well, that's sort of my my uh, self, self-deluding self version of that. I, maybe not. I think it certainly was over-ordered. You know, the, the, the children's book, the book business in general was still hobbled mm. by the whole return policy thing. That, uh, yeah. It's less important than it used to be, but it still is a big, big factor, a big 
drag on publishing. The whole idea that that, that books can be ret- ordered in whatever quantity you want, and then if you don't sell them, the bookstore can send it back for credit. Yeah, I mean, other businesses don't work that way. Right. <laughs> I don't think, and uh, not all books are done that way, but you know, a lot of uh, what we call trade publishing is still done that way through, through the bookstore trade, and so bookstores and also sales forces they have they they will go in and say this is going to be a big book you should order this to all their buyers and all the chains this, this is going to be a big thing so they'll order you know two hundred thousand of them and then they sell a hundred thousand of them and they give they send a hundred thousand back and so it's a big flop right whereas if they had ordered eighty thousand of them <laughs> everybody would thought this is the biggest the greatest thing ever you know yeah and i think that definitely happened this was the chance of Harper Collins to say, "Hey, we're making a, taking a, a stake in the Bernstein Bears. We have rights to Bernstein Bear books. You know, take that random house. So we're gonna flood the thing out there." And so it sold. If they ordered, I think that like 120,000 were ordered, and they sold about what 100,000. Yeah. The fact that they had to send 20,000 back meant it was a flop. <laughs> <laughs> so it went out of print after a few years. But it wasn't the last large format hardback. It, it... Yeah, and all the other ones were flops too. Oh, really? Yeah, it turns out that, uh, and that wasn't because of overordering. So as I say, I was kind of, maybe I'm self-alibying about the whole overordering. <laughs> the fact is that, although I don't, I think the other books I did for HarperCollins in large format were very nice books. I, mm-hmm. I don't think that they had the art problems I had with that book because that, by that time, the time I didn't go back to school and vacation and the other several we did, Old Fashioned Christmas. Uh, I think I, those, I, I feel very pleased with how they came out. Yeah. And, and people like those books. They get great, and they're still in print, mm-hmm. but they don't sell them. And it turns out that how much do they cost anyway? 12, 13 bucks? Yeah, something like 12 99 13 Let me look at this. I don't even remember. Yeah, not 12 99 Turns out that people are not looking for Bernstein Bear books that cost 12 Yeah. They're looking for books, Bernstein Bear books, like the ones that they've been buying for 100 years that cost four bucks. <laughs> <laughs> and if you show them a Bernstein Bear book that costs 12 13 $14, they say, uh, no thanks. Unless it's a bargain, a bind up. A oh, I see. Where you're getting like 10 for the price of one. Yeah. Yeah. Then we go. But the thing is, then those those things are all designed to be sold at discount. Right. So it's, it says on it, you know, twelve ninety nine, but you're really selling it for eight ninety nine. Of course, it's designed to be sold. But sorry, it's yeah. not designed to be. Nobody sells it at the full price. That's a fake. Sorry, that's not my fault. I, I don't. Yeah. I don't. I don't run how publishers do their sleaziness. That's yes. the, publishers are my natural enemy, so I, I'm not vouching for that. So yeah, so the Berenstain Bears, and and I agree with you. I think the large format books are. There, I mean, and this isn't just me saying this. I think they're beautiful books. I think they're. Thank you. I mean, they're, I, I sort of used the Christmas as a kind of a trial. You know, figure out how not to do it, and then yeah. I yeah, learn my lessons. And uh, and of course, uh, you mentioned your your work on the chapter books illustrations uh, in the past, and I've I've gone on record many times as saying uh, I would be I would pay money for a collection of just the chapter books illustrations because they are among my favorite Berenstain Bears uh, works. Well, if any publisher was. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. A very a, niche book. Chapter books are, are out in limited publishing, like these e-books and e-book adaptations. But after their initial run in the 90s, they really weren't viable. I know. They are, they are, they have a special place in my heart. But uh, I, uh, I like they, them too. 
from the from the the moment I stepped into your studio years ago and we sat down and talked about the publishing industry, I have learned this is a this is a wild and a wild and woolly world that uh, if anyone thinks because uh, sometimes people will talk to me and they'll be like, oh, you cover the Berenstain Bears, and they're like, they they act like the Berenstain Bears are because they've heard of them and they grew up with them that it's this just slick money making machine that must just pump out just. Well, we try to make it a money right. Maker, believe me, it's never slick. <laughs> and and I and I and it's I, real, I it's a Rube Goldberg device. Yes, <laughs> but you know, it's this clutched together cockamamie thing, and we try to make as much money as possible. I guarantee you. But yeah. man, it's not slick. No, and I said, I I said, you know, I was like, I talked to Mike, and it seems like part of the goal is simply to try to get the the latest Berenstain Bears book not put behind the latest Moana adaptation, like just trying to keep those books at the Front the main, of the the main goal is is not to to have yourself flayed by your business partners. Yeah, <laughs> just try to survive dealing with the people you're in business with. That's the main goal. And then if you get through that, then you start dealing with issues like that. There we go. Um, but this has been this has been a story that I've you know that I've I've longed to hear and have you tell me because it's a. Uh, because it's always better to hear it directly from you. And I, I really admire your devotion to the cause and the, 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 the way you're willing to get into the woodwork of all this stuff. I love it. I think it's great. I mean, the, you're devoted to a very kind of obscure cause, the very same bears. But I think that kind of devotion deserves support. I am I am a weird I have developed a weird evangelical streak that I have passed on to some random friends of mine who will suddenly jump into conversations about the bears online like on Twitter and places they will start like defending the Berenstain bears in ways that I find admirable but also I'm like wow I didn't realize I'd influence people in this way so you Are have you your defenders people off? You what? Are you ticking people off in some way? No, it's, uh, 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 I, I guess it's- they, I thought you, they were defending them against you. No, no, it's whenever people will, will start launching into oh, their- Oh, it's just issue in the culture in general. Right. They'll suddenly be like, you don't understand that Santa Jam Berenstain, they started this as, and Mike, well, he continues in the- <laughs> And I'm like, go for it. Well, people do misunderstand, you know, people make assumptions about- Yeah, oh, a lot of assumptions. And I see a lot of people making comments online like that, that they think I took over the characters after my parents death right which i guess you know if you didn't know anything about it you would think you would jump to that conclusion but right that's that's not true <laughs> yeah no uh it's it's there's so much involved and I, i'm and i appreciate the the times you've jumped in and been like funny that you thought well, that when i've when i've is i'll be frankly i will listen to, to your i don't li always listen to your podcast but i do when i notice that it's some book that i think i i'm interested in, some book i really like <laughs> Like when you did uh, the the loser friend, I thought, oh, I, that's a really interesting thing <laughs> for me. So I listened to that, and I and it what you had a lot of things wrong, but they were to me they were amusing, heartwarming things. As I think you got my <laughs> yes, oh yeah, uh, that, did what and the origins of, and I thought no, it wasn't me. It was my dad. <laughs> no, look, you sent me that email. I saw it arrive. <laughs> it, was, it was like oh. <laughs> I saw that email arrive. I got up and I left my desk and I did not return for a while. I was so terrified of opening oh, that email. No, I, I don't, I'm sorry. You, thought, you realize after you read it that it wasn't. Oh, of course. It was that it really, it was kind of heartwarming to me. The, the ways that the misinterpretations you've had about what happened in that book, because it just took me back to working with parents. Their quirks and foibles, and idiosyncrasies. It was just so funny. Well, and I loved it because it's a reminder that, and a reminder for my listeners, and a reminder for everyone out there that each of these books 
has a story and was written by actual people with lives and histories and that these aren't some soulless product pumped out by a corporation. They are, they're, they're books written by people and drawn by people. Some of the stuff we do, like when we license stuff, then it's a whole soulless product. Yeah. But we don't do that much of that. No. So, and <laughs> and, we, and try to, we try to control it. And I think it was, I think it was at the Strong Museum we saw, it may have been the Strong Museum, it may have been in your studio, we saw the original layouts for the cookie boxes that were done uh, when Berenstain Bears Cookie. So it must have been at the Strong Museum. And I, I, I mean, I, I remember those, but I don't know if I have them or they And have. Brad and Jeremy and I were looking at these like different drafts and different sketches. And like originally, like they were going to have like basically every character ever created for the Berenstain Bears. And, and it was this moment I was just like, oh, wow, like you don't think of these cookie boxes as being poured over and cared about. Of course, you know, my parents, especially my mom, was very unusual in that she did a lot of that herself. Mm-hmm. And frankly, that was kind of crazy. But still, the, like it's there. Time usage point of view. But that's what they were obsessed. Yeah. I'm obsessed, but not quite like that. <laughs> I guess, yes, there's just, there's a lot of heart in this and a lot of history and a lot of family in this in this saga and i love it i love i love that you take the time to share it with me so thank you uh, it's been a pleasure well and thank you for being so obsessed yourself <laughs> and uh merry christmas to you and yours merry christmas and happy hanukkah well that was it that was the christmas episode that was my interview with mike berenstain thank you so much mike for spending an hour talking with me it was uh, enlightening and educational and illuminating as usual uh there's always so much that I'm not expecting to hear about. There are so many anecdotes and stories, and every time he talks, I feel like I learn a little bit more about not only the creation of the Berenstain Bears, but who Stan and Jan were, This these fascinating people, this, these complex individuals, this, this amazing saga that is still going on, the story of the Bears. Uh, but you may be wondering, listeners, what did I actually think of this book? I, I mentioned it briefly, but am I actually going to talk about the Berenstain Bears Save Christmas? Why, yes. Yes, as a matter of fact, I am. Uh, I will be doing a small episode, a short episode, on, just on the book, on the look of the book, on the on the tail of the book. I've covered it briefly, but I, I want to I wanna dig a little bit deeper into it. It won't be a major episode, but uh, maybe I'll drop it on Christmas Day. Does that sound good? Maybe next week's episode will just be a special Christmas, Christmas stocking stuff. We'll call it that, a stocking stuffer. So... Uh, tune in next week and I will tell you about my thoughts on the Berenstain Bears Save Christmas. But I'm still reeling from having had Mike on the show again. So thank you. Thank you, Mike, for for taking that time. And for everyone else out there, I will see you all next time deep in bear country. <laughs> <laughs>